0: Along Megalaba, Burmese for how are you doing? I was just in the land of Myanmar uh, doing training, as uh, Pastor Thomas mentioned. I got back this week, also did a stopover in the Philippines, and uh had opportunity to train some brothers, some pastors, church leaders from um, the nation of Myanmar, which used to be Burma, and I just appreciate... Thomas uh, expressing lifting us up in prayer, and as you do that, as you pray for the missionaries, pray for those that they are connected to in the country. They face the Croatians uh, where the Wolbrants are. I just was in Myanmar. They face many challenges, many difficulties. So we need to remember not only pray for us as we as we go and minister among them, but pray especially for your brothers and sisters there. It's hard to express. I've talked about in Pakistan some of the challenges they face there. It's really hard to express. To us as Americans, just the, the difficulties that our brothers and sisters face around the world. So please, as you remember us, also remember them. Now, this is the month of October. Another thing we remember is this is the month that the Reformation took place. Over 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed those 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And that event certainly could be considered the spark of the Reformation. But what really turned it into a raging fire was something else. It wasn't just what Luther wrote on those pages that he nailed to the door. Uh, It wasn't just the Reformers themselves, uh, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, and many others that God used to, to impact the church at that time. But actually, what truly brought about the sweeping revival in the church that we benefit from today is the unleashing of the word of God in the language of the people. You see, the oxygen that fueled that raging fire of the Reformation was the scripture itself. You're probably familiar with the five solas of scripture, uh, five solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, sola Christus, solus Christus. All right. So, I'm forgetting one, help me out. So, well, that's the big one. I'm waiting the fifth one for that one. So, sola gloria. Thank you. And I think what was primary central among those is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Because that was the battle cry of the Reformation. That was the battle cry of the reformers in the Reformation. They held an unwavering, unchangeable, rock-solid commitment to the word of God as the truth. I would draw your attention to Martin Luther once again about four years later in the Diet of Worms when he was called to stand and basically recant the doctrines that he had been teaching regarding justification by faith and things like that. He was told to give an answer, to reject, to repudiate these things. This is what he said. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils." My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. It's interesting in that moment, knowing the way he was going to respond would very well could cost him his life. He did not stand upon those 95 theses. He did not stand upon his own beliefs and understanding. He did not stand upon the concern of the church or the Pope or even the challenges or the issue he had with the indulgences. What is it that gave him the boldness? What is it that gave him the courage? What is it that gave him the motivation to stand before that council and say, look, you cannot persuade me. Only the scripture persuades me. He relied upon scripture alone. Sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. But you see, uh, it wasn't Luther who discovered this. It wasn't the reformers who came up with this understanding that it is Scripture alone. We actually see it all the way back in the days of Scripture. We see the Apostle Paul articulate it in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he said, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped or may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is the core of Sola Scriptura. Paul tells us in this passage that Scripture alone is God-breathed, that Scripture alone is able to train us in righteousness, that Scripture alone is what will equip us to be able to do every good work that God desires and requires of us, that Scripture alone is the source of truth because it is in Scripture alone that the Spirit of God works. Now, in Luther's day, he faced opposition, opposition to this particular belief. And in that day, in his day, it was the Roman Catholic Church that opposed him, that, attacks, that attacked this notion that scripture would be uh, determined truth over the church. But today we face a different opponent to Sola Scriptura. Today we face a different enemy to this idea that is found, that truth is found in scripture alone. Today's enemy is Postmodernism and its various forms, right? This is the philosophy, right, which declares that 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 there is no absolute truth. There is no objective standard there. There is no um, no, no formal fixed truth that we can rely upon. Humans are subjective, they reason. So objective truth really is impossible. If you think about it, especially when it comes to religion, especially when it comes to spirituality, in his book, The Truth War, John MacArthur said, the central characteristic of postmodernism is this, the rejection of every expression of certainty. In fact, postmodernists would suggest, they would say that it is arrogant to say one can know the truth. They would say that their slogan may be, that, that may be true for you, that, that may be your truth, but I make my own truth. In fact, it was uh, to quote modern day philosopher Oprah Winfrey, This is what she said, right? Speaking your truth is the most powerful tool that you have. And I think she really reflects the nature of our culture today. Now, I know this church stands on the truth. I know it has stood on the truth from its very beginning. I know that we here believe in absolute truth. I know that we here believe that this truth is found in the word of God. I understand that. But brothers and sisters, we would be naive to think that we are immune to the influences of the postmodern world around us. We would be foolish to think that the postmodernist philosophy would not have an effect on us. And listen, not have an effect on our children. Getting a ringing here. In fact, postmodernism has already found its way into the church. Uh, the emergent church movement would be one example of this. Now, while many in the emergent church would not deny the existence of absolute truth, they would certainly embrace that that truth is unclear or hazy or that it's, it's nearly impossible to know the truth with any degree of certainty. Some would say this even of the gospel. Brian McLaren, who is one of the leading figures of the emergent church, said this. I don't think we've got the gospel right yet. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think that we have it right either. That's an astonishing statement from a pastor. We don't have the gospel right yet. Well, but we'll keep trying. Maybe eventually we'll get there. Didn't Jesus say you shall know the truth? And the truth will set you free. But if we don't know the truth of the gospel, what does that mean? What are the implications? (laughs) If we can't know for certain the gospel message, what are the implications of that? Right? No hope, no salvation, no deliverance from hell. No relationship with God. That's where it leads us. Now, not everyone in the emergent church movement would, would say this. But because of the belief that one can't be sure of the truth, I think many do minimize the importance of doctrine or even ignore it altogether. Or they say, "You know what? We can't take a firm stand necessarily because can the truth really be known for sure?" And and it only creates disunity and disagreement. Such a view just amazes me. Because what is it that Paul said about the church in 1 Timothy 3? Do you remember? He said the church is the pillar and support of what? Of what? You're with me now. Talk to me. Of the truth, he said. In its very foundation, by its very definition, by its very calling, the church is to be where truth is understood, where it's proclaimed, where it's protected. Where it is treated as valuable and precious. The church is, by its definition, Bible-centered, truth-centered. That's what Paul said about it. There are many other churches that perhaps have not fallen into the emergent church ideas, but postmodernism has had an effect on them, has had an effect on many churches today. Many focus now on uh, personal truth or what will make me happy, what will make me satisfied. Hypergrace theology is one such example. Where the wonderful grace of God has been distorted and over-exaggerated to the point that the pursuit of holiness, the mortification of sin, the the call to repentance, the need of repentance, these are not only de-emphasized, but they're ignored or even condemned by some. You can't tell somebody that they have to follow the commands of Scripture. It's just all of grace, brother. Well, certainly it is by God's grace. But as we talked about this morning in Ephesians, God's grace demands a response. That He saved us, not just to give us to heaven. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, He chose us from the foundation, before the foundations of the earth, that we would be. So that we would be holy and blameless. The hyper-grace doctrine has embraced this postmodern idea that elevates feeling what is right over doing or thinking what is right. Forgotten Philippians two twelve, which says, "Work out your salvation, for God is at work." Another recent example of the postmodern influence in the church is what is known as the contemplative prayer movement. And I don't mean to be stepping on toes here, but we have to be careful and think about what. Folks are saying when they promote certain ideas, certain thoughts, the contempt of prayer, prayer movement, contemplative prayer movement encourages experiencing God by silently listening rather than actively speaking to God or being guided by his word in prayer. The idea that is that you just sit there in this meditative state, emptying everything out. And since you are focusing attention on God there, if you empty everything out, then God will talk to you. God will speak to you in that moment. As a result, prayer has been distorted into a passive meditation very similar to Eastern mysticism. I was just in a country that practices this pervasively. And that's exactly how they promote it. Empty your mind of everything and then the truth will fill it. Dangerous. What is the source of truth? Just sitting there waiting for something to happen? Again, Mysticism is placed over the priority of feeling what is right. is placed over the priority of thinking what is right or doing what is right. We see this recently in another movement in the church known as the New Apostolic Reformation, which there ex- determined that experience really determines reality. In fact, they follow, uh, go so far as to follow New Age movement in many ways. That the New Age, they even say, I read in one particular book, has discovered truths that the church has not yet found. We can learn from New Age philosophy. Now, it's important to note uh, the pagan practices are not uh, a direct result of postmodern philosophy. But they are based upon this idea of we live by not what is true, but by what we feel. Feeling what is right, again, is more important than thinking or doing what is right. Movement is taking the church by storm, by the way. I've had friends personally who have left churches like this one and fallen into the trap of the New Apostolic Reformation. So, brothers and sisters, we must be on the alert. We have to have our eyes open. We have to be careful. We must give serious attention to anything that will threaten a commitment to the truth as found in the Word of God. And again, I know this is probably nothing new for us here. This is not the first time you go, Really? Oh, the Scriptures? What's true? I don't think that's as new information, but I think we need to be reminded of any influence. Again, not just for us, but also for our kids. Any influence that might distract or hinder or seek to move us away from the truth. We have to remember this, too, brothers and sisters. We have an enemy whose focus is that very thing. You remember what were the first words recorded out of Satan's mouth in the Bible? What were the first word, first thing he said? Did God really say? What's he attacking there? Right? Can we really believe God? Can we trust what he has to say? Worked on Eve. Adam was just sort of the lumbering idiot there. Oh, yeah, let's, let's go for it, right? <laughs> but you know what? Satan's been committed to that strategy ever since. Because, honestly, he, he knows, he understands the nature of man. He knows we're going to sin. Yes, he, he's involved in temptations and things like that, but that's not his primary attack. Because he knows we're going to give in to sin. He's not so worried about that. What he's worried about, what he focuses on, is that we do not listen to, that we do not hear, or understand, or be given the truth which will deliver us from our enslavement to sin. And so this has been his focus, his job from, from that day in the garden. Constantly, in many different ways, in many different approaches. Did God really say? You know, if he loses someone who comes to faith in Christ, it's not like he just says, oh, well, there's another one gone. I'll just move on. No. What does he seek to do? If he cannot keep us from heaven, he'll do everything he can to keep us from holiness. How does he do that? And yeah. seeing his methodology for the last several thousand years. He clouds the truth. He confuses the truth. He causes people to doubt whether we can really know the truth. Or he elevates something else or tries to tempt us to elevate something else over the truth. This is his methodology, and he's gotten very good at it. Brothers and sisters, we're not helpless in this battle for the truth, are we? Remember when Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17... And he expressed the fact that Satan would be after the disciples. Do you remember what he said and how they were going to survive the attacks? How were they going to to come up under those attacks from Satan? What did he say there? Sanctify them, Father, in your truth. Your word is truth. How would they battle Satan? The word of God. While Satan's greatest weapon is to distort the truth, ours is to know the truth. Ours is to proclaim the truth. Ours is to live by the truth. Ours is to trust in and depend upon the truth. Amen? So this morning, I I really just want to remind us of that. Again, the battle cry of the Reformation needs to remain the battle cry in the church today. That God's Word is true. That in Scripture we have His truth. And we must rely on it. We must trust in it because of all these attacks coming against it. Believe me, I know people who I thought were solid, grounded in the truth for decades, who have walked away from it. Sadly, we've seen it many examples today even. Jesus knew that the disciples would be protected from the evil one by knowing the truth. In fact, if you remember, how is it that Satan responded to the devil when Satan came to him, tempting him in Matthew 4? Remember what he did? It is written. It is written. It is written. And then he said, take a hike. (laughs) Satan did, by the way. He left him. Saints, we have to realize that the danger is... Not just from Satan, as powerful as he is. The danger is not just from our postmodern culture, as, as great as the influence is. Our greatest danger is not from false teachers or misguided preachers who've been influenced by that culture. These are certainly challenges that we have. But do you realize that we have, a, I think, an even bigger danger at times? The problem can come from us. See, the danger arises not just from those who teach, but also from those who listen. Let me take you to 2nd Timothy chapter 4 to show you this. 2nd Timothy 4, as Jacob has been showing us on the last several months when he's been going into 2nd Timothy. He's reminded us how 2nd Timothy, this was Paul's last letter that he wrote and it was a personal letter written to his protégé Timothy and he wrote it knowing that his death was imminent he wrote it knowing that false teachers were increasing all around in and outside the church and so because of that we see in this letter to second Timothy an earnestness from Paul these last words that he has the last things that are on his mind and heart as he shares with Timothy he tells Timothy here to hold on to the truth. He tells him to live by the truth, to defend the truth, to protect the truth, to teach the truth, to proclaim the truth. In chapter 3, then he warns Timothy about these false teachers who are coming. And he, he describes their characteristics. And he tells them that he must rely on the Scriptures. And then look with me at 2 Timothy 4.1. It says this. I, Paul, solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Here we've come to near the end of Paul's letter. These final instructions that he's going to give to Timothy. And what is his attention focused on? What is it that he wants to leave with Timothy, as he closes this letter? All right, Timothy, you must notice the force of this charge. You must preach the word you must proclaim the truth and notice here in the text he equates the two and he tells Timothy when to preach the word right in season and out of season preach all the time doesn't matter if if uh, you feel like it or not if they want to hear it or not and then he tells Timothy how to preach the word reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction and then notice he tells Timothy why to preach the word He does this in verse three. Notice the first word there is for or because Timothy says or Paul says, Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. So here's um, what you need to preach. Here's how you need to preach when you need to preach. And Timothy, do this for verse three. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Why must the word be preached? Because at some point, people aren't going to want to listen. You see the focus there, listen, ears. says that they're going to want at some point just to hear what makes them feel good. To hear what they want to hear. This is emphasized in verse 3. Where he says, uh, right, he talks about the itching ear, right? The ear being tickled. That was an idiom, a figurative expression at that time. Or, you know, if someone scratches your ear. Like you see the dog do this, right? Ah, right. That kind of, that that idea, right? Where it just, it's... It's a scratching and itching. Oh, that feels good. Do that, do that some more. Notice here at the end of verse 3, he says that these people, because of that, they pile up. The word there is to amass, to accumulate. Pile up teachers according to their own desires. Again, according to what they want. How they want to feel, not what they need. Like our kids, right? They're always asking for the, the dessert at the end. I got a lot of us, too, probably uh, asking for that as well, right? We don't want the things that we need. We want the things we want. And as I mentioned earlier, postmodernism caters to this very thing. It fits right in. There's no absolute truth. It's whatever you want to believe. It's, It's whatever makes you feel good or feel right. You all have your own truth. How many times have we heard that? I want to hear what makes me feel good. Again, to quote Pastor MacArthur, he said this, this generation just won't sit in the pew while someone up front preaches at them. They are products of a media driven generation and they need a church experience that will satisfy them on their own terms by giving them what they want. Now, again, it's important to ask the question as we look at this passage in Second Timothy 4, the pronoun they is repeated several times. It's important to ask the question, who is the they who, who are the they? Who is the they? I don't know which one it is. Again, I'm an engineer. I don't remember all that grammar stuff. Who is the they? They will not endure, wanting their ears tickled. They will accumulate their own desires. Who's that? Well, if we look at the context of the passage, it's the people Timothy's preaching to. And at that time in the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, we talked about them this morning in our first hour in the equipping hour. There will come a time, Paul says, Timothy, when some from your own congregation will rise up and say, this isn't for me. There will come a time when professing believers, members of the church, those who sat under his teaching, perhaps even for years. And remember, Paul was there before Timothy. Now they have Timothy there. He says, Timothy, even they will turn away from the truth. This is not a weak church we're talking about here. Again, this is a church where Paul helped to establish, where Paul was there for almost three years training and teaching, where Timothy pastored for several years. And then even later, the Apostle John is going to come along. Revelation 2 says this church was well-grounded in sound doctrine. But Paul says even among them. You seen the danger here, the connection? This was a Bible church. Use that terminology. Even from this Church, this solid church at Ephesus, so well taught, so well grounded, people will rise up and say, ah, this is not for me. I want something else. So, brothers and sisters, if the church at Ephesus could be tempted, if they were in danger of walking away, certainly we too are susceptible. Certainly you too are susceptible. Again, we've seen it over and over, many examples. I've had many friends over the years, heartbreakingly walk away. Those that I thought, this person was never, people who were teachers, deacons, and now we've even seen pastors, prominent pastors in our own churches walk away. Joshua Harris is a man that comes to mind recently. shocking. Shocking. Guys like them could be so influenced. We are not immune. Our children are not immune. How do we avoid this? How do we avoid the influence of the postmodernists around us? How do we stand up to the attacks of Satan as he seeks to make things confusing, to distort the truth? And how do we even stand up against ourselves and the temptation we might have to want to go after something that makes me feel good, something that sounds right, something that appeals to me, as opposed to what God has said? How do we do that? Paul gives the answer plainly in Second Timothy four, 2 Timothy 4.2. He tells Timothy, preach the word, proclaim the truth. And to that, I think James would add, not only listening, but also doing Prove yourself to be doers of the word, not merely, not only hearers. Jesus himself said, sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. And so what is the answer, brothers and sisters? The answer is, again, the truth. To know the truth. To understand the truth. To live by the truth. To trust in the truth. To proclaim the truth. To defend the truth. What is it that will motivate us to do that what is it that will keep you and I from straying from the truth well to find the answer to that I want to take you up a few verses before when Paul told Timothy to preach the word what is it that he said right before that we'll go back with me to verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and here we're going to see three reminders about the word of God that will keep us in dependence upon it Three truths about the truth that will motivate us to be Bible-centered, to be sola scriptura saints, if I could put it that way. So turn with me up to 2 Timothy 3.14. Now, that all oh, that was the introduction of the message. <laughs> yeah, buckle up. We're going to be here a while. No, I'll, I'll, I'll try to summarize it, be brief, because I think it's pretty straightforward what Paul says to Timothy. Look with me at verse 14. Just after, again, warning Timothy that... Depraved, false teachers, wicked individuals will rise up and attack the truth. Paul then says this in verse 14. But you, Timothy, continue in the things you learned and became convinced of knowing from whom you learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pause here a moment just to pray. Oh Lord, I do ask from these verses you would cement in our minds and hearts conviction about your word that it is true. And trust in it. Lord, we live by it. And I pray, God, you would enable us by your Spirit to understand and apply. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So we see here three truths from these verses that will motivate you and I to be Bible centered, that will motivate us to be sola scriptura saints, even as we face the onslaught of attacks. Against it, and the first of these truths is simply this: God speaks through His Word. <laughs> what will motivate us to be soulless, scripture saints, to be Bible-centered? Well, God speaks through it. Paul articulates this very clearly in verse 16, in those famous words: "All Scripture is what God breathed. God breathed." I think Paul made this word up. It's the only time we see it in the New Testament. He took. Greek word from God, Theos, and the word for breathe, Neo. And he put them together. Theonestos is the word. It's the only time we see it here. I think Paul did this, did this on purpose. Now, some translations, my beloved NASV has this, says inspired, but it's really the idea of expired. Right? It's it's what he breathed out. I think the ESV says it that way, that all scripture is breathed out by God, So it's this picture, this idea that just just as our lungs breathe out uh, breath or, you know, technically, what is it? Mostly carbon dioxide and some other things in a similar way or in a like way that God's lungs, so to speak, breathe out his word that it comes from him. He is the source. Yes, the Bible is written by men in their own language, their own personality, their own circumstances, their own context. But the ultimate source of what was written here comes from the Spirit of God. Second Peter 1 describes this. Know this first of all, he said in verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. As the authors of Scripture were writing, they were moved. Or it's the idea of a, like a wind carrying a sail of a ship. They were moved by the Spirit. David recognized this. It's interesting. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, David said these words. He knew that as he was writing the Psalms, that actually God was behind it. He said this, 2 Samuel 23, 1. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the sweet psalmist of Israel says, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Jesus affirmed this in Mark 12, 36, when he quoted Psalm 110 and he said this, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. And he quoted from the passage, Hebrews three, verse seven. The author of Hebrews says, just as therefore the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes from Psalm 95, seven. And then in the next chapter, he quotes from the exact same Psalm, exact same verse. He says this saying through David. Well, which is it? The Holy Spirit or David. What's the answer? Yes. Right? David indeed was the author who wrote that psalm, and at the same time, the words that landed on the page were the exact words that the Holy Spirit wanted to be there. Now, how did that all work? How did that all happen? I don't know. It did. That's what the Bible describes it as. That's why Paul could tell Timothy this is God breathed, this came from God. Written by men. So yes, the intent of the human author was the same as the intent of the divine author. And so we have before us the God-breathed Word. God speaks through it is a simple way to summarize that. Now, don't miss the significance of this, right? For when you are spending that time in the Word, and I think now we're reading through Joshua, right? As a church. As you're reading through the book of Joshua, this is... God breathed word. And that should be motivation enough to want to know what it says, right? I mean, if listen, if you got a letter one day, a FedEx showed up at your doorstep and he's got this letter and he says, I have a letter here from God. Well, you know, we'd probably laugh at first. and But honestly, if we believe that, how would you respond? Now, that won't happen, okay? This is just an illustration, some made-up story. But, but if that were to happen and you were convinced that this letter came directly from God to you, what would you do? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I don't think so. <laughs> right? Well, that's what we have. <laughs> it's just a big letter. Um, but God speaks through it. He's written. And the intent was for the original audience at the beginning, but then also for all of God's people. For us. In fact... Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 4. He said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we've been given what that word is. It's not hidden. We haven't had to search for it. God's plainly given to us. And notice Jesus said every word. Remember what Paul said. All scripture. Jesus carried it a step further in Matthew 5.18 when he said this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's a profound statement. Not only every word, every letter within the word, and even he uses the term for a stroke, a part of a letter, is what God intended to be there. Jesus affirms here very clearly that this book is breathed out by God. And since God is without error, then what he has said is without error. Because the inerrancy of the Word of God is rooted in the inerrancy of the character of God. <laughs> right? If we affirm this is God's book, that God speaks from it, then we affirm it is all true. Otherwise, God is not. Psalm nineteen seven says, The law of the Lord is perfect, and the judgments of the Lord are true. And so this is why Jesus could say without hesitation, If you want proof from the Scripture that the Bible's inerrant, just follow Jesus's words. He said it simply this way: "Your word is truth." There it is. That's it. Jesus's summary on inerrancy. Now I've just saved you all that time you'd have to spend on a theology seminar on inerrancy. Just go from. No, no, no. You should take it. It's still helpful, but. But I think Jesus just synthesizes it all there. Your word is truth. End of discussion. But postmodernists don't like that assertion. Another emergent church leader, Rob Bell. You remember Love Wins? That guy. He said this. The Bible wasn't written by a third party somewhere in the sky who passively and objectively tells you what the plan is. It was written by real people in real places at real times doing their best to make sense of it all. Written only by men trying to make a sense out of life. Is that what Paul said about it? Is that what Peter said about it? Is that what Jesus said about it? Whose word are you going to take here? Those three or Mr. Bell? Look, the Bible is not a book that is subject to the evaluation and judgment of human beings. We cannot assert whether truth can be known or not. Who can assert that? Only one person could. Someone who knows all the truth, knows everything. No human being or even group of human beings fall under that category. And we cannot choose to ignore some parts of the Bible because they're uncomfortable, because we don't understand them, because they're challenging, perhaps because they make us feel bad. Because, listen, if it was important enough for God to breathe it out, it is important enough for us to breathe it in. Every word. Every word. It is our spiritual oxygen that gives us life. I'm reminded of uh, what Peter said. You remember in John 6, when all the disciples, when the followers of Jesus, the pseudo disciples, they left him and the 12 are standing there and Jesus turns to them and say, are going to leave too? And what did Peter say? Right. One of those few shining moments. Right. Where would we go? You have the words of Eternal life. We don't understand them all, but we know you've got them. So we should be motivated to be sola scripture of saints because God speaks through it. Secondly, we should be motivated to be Bible centered because God saves through it. Look with me again at verse 14. But you, Timothy, continue in the things you learned and became convinced of knowing from whom you learned them. He was taught by... Uh, His mother and grandmother, we learn in 1st Timothy, knowing from whom you learn them and that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. What does Paul tell Timothy here? Ever since you were an infant, he says, literally from the times you were a baby, you've been taught the scripture. So we have here a faithful mother Eunice, a faithful grandmother, Lois, who brought the word to him as ever since he was a little guy. And then Paul comes along later as Timothy is a young adult and Paul shares with him the gospel. And how is it that Timothy could immediately say, oh, this is true. Jesus is the Messiah. How could he know that? Right. Those faithful family members who taught him from the word, the word gave him wisdom. This is the Old Testament, too, by the way. Right. That's all that. Timothy was taught the first testament, I should say, rather. So Paul says, remain, continue in the things that you learned, continue in them because of what the things you learned will produce, because of what the sacred writings will produce. It is they will make one wise unto salvation. What is it that Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing what the word of God? That's how the gospel is brought. That's how the gospel is believed, is the Spirit working through the Word. We see a perfect illustration of this in Acts 8. Remember Philip, who's called the evangelist? He's going along, and all of a sudden the Spirit directs him. He wants to go down that road. Okay, so he goes down that road in Samaria. And there's this guy, this Ethiopian, who's a member of the Queen's Court. He's sitting in a chariot, and he's reading Isaiah, of all things. So Philip comes up to him and says, "Sir, do you, do you understand what you're reading?" He says, "No, I have no idea. I need someone to explain it to me. Who is this guy being talked about here?" He was reading Isaiah 53. All right, that's the easiest gospel transition ever, isn't it? Can you explain the Bible to me, please? So that's what Philip does, and it says there that beginning from that passage, Philip explained Jesus to him from the scriptures. And the guy gets saved. He comes to believe. It's amazing, right? This, this Gentile it's sitting on the road, happening to have this manuscript, they're reading from Isaiah, but he doesn't understand what it means. And when the Bible's explained to him, okay, this is what's true. I believe. I believe. We experienced this, uh, I think I mentioned to you before, this uh, Muslim couple that we were at in a church. In Pakistan, who attended, they came into, a, we were doing a conference on marriage. They came up to us afterwards and they said, we know this is true. We want to follow Christ. And then they said, I think I mentioned to some of you before, they said, we know this could cost us our lives. They still believed. How is that? <laughs> That's the power of the Spirit through the Word. They knew, they even said this. They said, we know it's true. We know this is true. Knew the truth of the Bible. In Luke chapter 10, a lawyer comes up to Jesus. He wanted to put Jesus to the test. And he says, so Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, that's the question, right? How do I get saved? You know, so tell me. Jesus's response is so enlightening. What did he tell this guy? He says to him essentially this. uh, He says, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? He says, you, Mr. Lawyer, you know the Bible. The answer's right there. It's the truth. Jesus relied on the spoken word of God, the written word of God. Because Jesus knew in the Bible that we learn the truth that God is holy, that he's perfectly holy, all powerful, he created all things. With But a word it's in the Bible, right, that we learn the truth that all of us have rebelled against God, deserving the judgment of hell. It's in the Bible. We learn the truth that God sent his son to become a man, to live a sinless life, to die an unjust death on the cross. It's from the Bible that we learn the truth that he died on that cross as a payment for sin for any who would put their trust in him. It's In the Bible, we learn the truth that Jesus rose from the dead to show his sacrifice for sin was accepted by the father. It's from the Bible we learn the truth that it is only through Jesus we can be saved. It is in the Bible that we learn the truth that if we confess Jesus as Lord and, and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Only, that's found in the Word of God. The only place where we find absolute truth. That is the truth. That's the only way that you and I can be saved. That's the only way you and I can be forgiven. That's the only way you and I can be right with God. There are not many paths to God. It's not that we each have our own truth that's going to get us there. What did Jesus say very clearly about this? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's no other way to the Father but through me. John 17 or John 14:6, yes you believe that? Believe that. Is that true? Your eternity depends on how you respond to that. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone? He's the only way. There are many paths to God that are stated in the world. Why do you think that is? I've been to many countries around the world, predominantly Buddhist, predominantly Catholic, predominantly Muslim... Predominantly pagan, atheist, dominantly Hindu. They all have their own answers to this question. How do you think that is? Huh, it seems like maybe somebody's trying to distort the truth and cloud the truth, isn't it? Jesus was very clear. There's only one way. To a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, have you truly put your faith in Him? Him alone. If you have, remember, the message of eternal life, the gospel, the truth are found in his word. As, as John rightly said, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? So, brothers and sisters, we need to be sola scriptura. Saints we will be motivated by that. One, because God speaks through it. Secondly, because God saves through it. And third and lastly, briefly, God sanctifies through it. God sanctifies us through his word. Notice again 2 Timothy 3:16. Paul says, "All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped having been thoroughly equipped for every good work." Paul says here, "We are thoroughly equipped." That we are that the the word is makes us adequate. We can. The Bible brings conviction for sin. The Bible shows us how we may be restored. The Bible instructs us and disciplines us how we can lead a righteous life. And notice verse 17. Notice the first words there. What are they? So that this tells us why is the Bible profitable for us? Because of what it produces in us. The God breathed word makes us adequate. The God breathed word equips us for how many good works? Every. Every good work. What does that mean? That whatever situation you face, there is a path to know what God would want you to do. And you can find that path here. Every good work, no matter what it is. Bible is sufficient. I like what John Piper said. Every good work that God expects us to do, the scriptures equip us to do. Back, Romans fifteen four says this Whatever was written, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. And this is a critical point today that we must understand, we must hold to, especially in this postmodern culture, Scripture is sufficient. The word of God is enough for us to know what God wants and how we're to live. If you're struggling with any issue. Whether it's an addiction, if you're struggling with lust or anger or job or relationship, whether you're struggling with poor health, whether you have challenges with suffering, suffering some particular issue, persecution, loss of a loved one, whatever it is you face, the Bible has the answers. Because it points us to the one with those answers. In a world that questions whether truth exists in a time in our history when many professing believers even question whether one can know the truth in a time when even many pastors or church leaders or worship leaders walk away from the truth. In that kind of world, we must stand on this conviction, brothers and sisters, that the truth is found. There is a truth, the truth, and it's found only in the word of God. Sola Scriptura. Because God speaks through it, he saves through it, and he sanctifies through it. Let me close with the words of, I mentioned John Piper, let me close with uh, his words. He says this, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes, not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them I cannot see what is lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever. And then the Bible provides me. Inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. I love my eyes because they allow me to see what is beautiful in this world. I love the Bible because it allows me to see the one who is beautiful.. Right?